Hello, everyone. Welcome to This Must Be the Place, the Building Science Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Henderson. Each episode is a deep conversation with a carefully chosen peer about not just houses, but place. Yeah, of course we talk about houses and retrofits, but we also want to change the industry for the better, forever. Energy poverty, community engagement, industry disruption, societal responsibility, and climate change. It's all here and so much more. Welcome back to This Must Be the Place, the Building Science Podcast. I'm your host, Shauna Henderson. My guest today and I share a deep love of energy retrofits, a deep love of deep energy retrofits. Emma Norton joins me today, and she's working two jobs that she's ridiculously passionate about. I love that about her. I'm going to ask her about like when she might actually sleep, but you know, we'll get to that. Um, so I met Emma when she was uh, with the Ecology Action Center here in Nova Scotia, and I'm not sure what your official title was, but now she is the Director of Government Relations and Atlantic Canada organizing at the Climate Emergency Unit, which is uh, part of the Suzuki Foundation. We'll talk about that more. And she is the Operations Director at the Recover Initiative, a nonprofit she co-founded and that we spoke about last week with Betsy Agar. So it's so nice to see you again, Emma. I mean, we live in the same city and I haven't seen you for, I don't know, you know, how many COVID years does that move, like dog years? I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, at least two now. Yeah. 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 I mean, we've been on different kind of Zoom calls for the whole pandemic um, here and there, especially at the early parts, but I haven't seen you for a while. We've both been heads down. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to jump right into what you're doing now because it's, you're doing a lot of very interesting things. So go. (laughs) <laughs> All right. Yeah. One, two, three, go. So, uh, yeah, like you mentioned, I'm working two jobs right now. Um, this is my last week um, before reducing my hours with the Climate Emergency Unit, which is um, where I'm the Director of Government Relations in Atlanta, Canada, organizing. So the um, Climate Emergency Unit is a project of the David Suzuki Institute, not the oh, Institute. Sorry. It's okay. I need to correct everyone because the institute isn't well known. It was it was it's set up. Um, it's non charitable. So any projects run through that institute that's very closely affiliated with David Suzuki um, can be more nimble, can be more political mm-hmm. when they need to be, which the foundation can't be, right? right. So right. Um, we are set up due to the climate emergency. We're a five-year project. So we're thinking about our very tiny carbon budget that we have left globally. Um, and the spark for the Climate Emergency Unit is a book written by Seth Klein called A Good War. Right. And in this book, Seth creates a comparison of the mobilization that's required for the climate emergency to the mobilization that was required for the Second World War in Canada. Uh, 
I love that concept. There's a lot of really, really tangible lessons we can learn. Um, and I helped Seth, Seth with his book launch in Atlantic Canada um, in what year was it? I guess it must have been maybe 2020. Um, and, yeah, it was 2020. And uh, and then later on, he reached out to see if I wanted to be part of this larger project. Um, and it's been really fun. Um, it's been really nice to be in a um, 100% advocacy organizing role again. Um, as you know from being in meetings with me, I really like to pound that climate emergency drum. Mm-hmm. Um, and our we, we, we operate under these six markers. So if a government is to be in climate emergency mode, it is spending what it takes to win. It's creating new institutions to get the job done. And that's um, that is hearkening back to when during the Second World War, the Canadian government made 28 new crown corporations to make sure we had mm. enough administration okay. of the rollout of infrastructure and vehicles, and ammunition and housing that needed to happen. So, um, yeah, so we, we know we can do it. We know we can do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the final few tenets, it's, um, it's moving from voluntary to mandatory. It's telling the truth, leaving no one behind and centering Indigenous leadership and sovereignty. So um, whenever we see a climate policy come out or we hear a government talking about planning for climate, we say, well, you need to consider these things to really be in emergency mode. So that's one of my projects. And clearly, I, I you know, I could talk about it for ages. Um, and the other one has been a passion project that I um, co-founded with my friends and colleagues, Lori Rand and Nick Runitsky. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the Recover Initiative that you said, you chatted about with Betsy last week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's fantastic. Yeah, so, so we we were sort of like, I love this being able to to pull all these people. Like, you know, there's 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 Betsy and there's Mark Carver and there's you know there's I talked to Dave Butterwick and and so there's a bunch of folks who are who are yeah. out there doing things in terms of deep energy retrofits and focus on low carbon and reducing, you know, just basically helping. To, you know, figuring out ways that we can reduce carbon energy slash everything and include the all the issues around um, energy resiliency and energy poverty, relieving energy poverty. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so that's, I'm super excited to have, you know, more and more people on. And, and we talked, I talked with Marie Hanship, who was with the Home Builders Association a few weeks ago. And we were thinking we might have as part of probably season three of this podcast, actually having um, uh, a group of folks come on and actually have panel discussions. So one would be uh, carbon and then another one would be deep energy retrofits and energy resiliency, like all those things. So we'll actually start to have like some, you know, after having all these individuals on, then we'll have some more groups which is super yeah. cool. I'm excited about the whole prospect but that's sort of like in the in in the nearish future but right now tell me because I know You're that so I was involved lucky. with <laughs> I know I just get to chat with everybody um but I I know that uh like like I had Lori and Nick here 
in my house and fed them dinner at the very, very, very beginning of this. They're like, so now what? And, um, and then you moved on with, uh, you, you came into the picture and you've built out this whole, uh, this whole piece now. So recover initiative is now uh, a not for profit. Yes. We still have a lot of work to be, to like open a bank account. We were working Mm -hmm. really closely with, um, I, I say open a bank account to just demonstrate that we really need to work on the nonprofit aspect because we lean super heavily on our partners that are already more established. So mm-hmm. Quest, who I was working right. for for a year before I worked with the Climate Emergency Unit, um, was incredibly generous and supportive of the Recover Initiative. So Great. Quest um, was the, the initial nonprofit partner. That the, any reco- the first recover project happened through is found, funded by the Department of Energy and Mines. Um, and now we're looking for other funders and other project partners like Lori has her own architecture firm, Habit Studio, Nick has RSI projects. So we lean heavily on them for some of the more administrative heavy mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. parts of the project. And the goal this year is to actually become established as a nonprofit because when you're so our goal is to develop a deep retrofit solution that's scalable at the speed required for the climate crisis right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know you're very on board with that like that's one of the reasons I was drawn to you and so um so in order to really get this off the ground you need to start working with some bigger chunks of money and it's very hard to get that funding into a yes. nonprofit that doesn't have any paperwork behind it. That's why we yeah. really so heavily on our partners. But um, we're really excited about what we're trying to do. We've got a really great advisor, like official advisory committee um, nice. that Betsy sits on and Brendan, who is also on your podcast. And mm-hmm. um, then we've got this other like larger community like you that we can like call on and call up when we have specific questions or want to chat about something. So for us, it's like really based on this panelized solution, the energy sprung, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. we're, we're attached to that in that we think it's a brilliant idea for so many reasons. But what it really comes down to is we want to be able to retrofit um, our Canada's building stock at the scale required. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the retrofit mission paper from um, Brendan Haley and Ralph Torrey at Efficiency Canada they put together if we're to really be in emergency mode that means retrofitting like 12 to 14 percent of our building stock a year right yeah, like it works, it works out to, it's like it works out to something crazy like you know one one house completed every like 35 seconds <laughs> it's like what yeah like, yeah I mean it's, it's it's a lot it's a lot it's we we yeah, mobilizing this is going to be really a huge challenge. So, yeah, I'm working on a bunch of other stuff that we'll talk about offline. Um, okay, great. <laughs> because it's all in the planning and, you know, not quite ready for, for public information yet. Um, but yeah, so, so recover is, is essentially looking at one or, or one or more ways of, of developing an energy sprung for Canada. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and we, we just, because we're dedicated to finding a solution, we often find ourselves dipping our fingers into all the different aspects of what will make 
a scalable mm-hmm. solution for Canada. So it's not just about energy spawn, it's just like how do we make retrofits happen? And for yep. me, these two projects that I'm working on are so closely aligned because one's mm-hmm. on the implementation of retrofits and the other one's like, yeah, but how do we create the policy policy yeah. that's required to meet the scale of retrofits? Um, so, yeah, I have a lot of trouble trying. I don't have a favorite because I love them both very much and um, they're both necessary for the other. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. They're very intertwined. And and I and I'm super happy that you're on the policy side of it, because that's where I just want to bang my head against the wall and like, you know. I would possibly resort to throat punching people because I just don't have patience. Well, Sana, everything is unboxing, so it might might be there might be a correlation there. <laughs> so I'm gonna go back because um I wanna sort of step back to when you were in school and you you said at some point that your studies made you obsessed with climate change and fossil fuel phase out. So what was that? Like what we would, I think I remember that way back having <laughs> those conversations with you about like, how did you get here? Um, but tell me, how did you get here? Yeah. Um, well, I definitely like I, you know, I was in the environmental club in school, but I was also in the, like, this isn't cool anymore, but when I was in high school, it was cool to be in Free the Children clubs. Uh, much more fun. In, in what? Uh, Free the Children, or what became We, we Charity. Had, you know, oh, 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 yeah. okay. Um, we won't talk about them. No, no. <laughs> Controversial. But, like, when I was, it was like, when I was in school, that was what people who were interested in um international development work got involved in and I remember um very much being in high school and people needing to make um predictions for what your future was going to be and like half my classmates said I was going to go into like work with free the children work on international development the other half were like she's going to run an environmental organization because everyone's like biggest dreams for you right they're always like you're going to run something or do something incredible and uh, I was like, I'm not going to run an environmental organization. I care about people more than I care about the planet. And then I got it. And then I, yeah, you see where we're going here. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I remember very specifically um, writing a paper on the um, the crisis in Darfur in Sudan. And um, re- I was, I became really, um, hyper, I became really fixated on that conflict and the people that were dying and being killed and what was happening. And then this article was published calling it one of the first climate wars mm. and saying that it had been exacerbated because of the way the climate was changing in Sudan. So right. that the different political tensions got even more tense and we're seeing this happen all over the world. And that was kind of my first like indicator that environmental issues were not just the environmental problem that like humans and the environment humans are part of the environment that we're connected um and so i got to go to um i went to king's or dal i'm technically a king's grad but almost all my classes were at dalhousie and i studied international development and i studied i was in the second almost first uh graduating class for the environment sustainability uh and society oh could you do you know Sam Littlefair? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's my stepson. No way! 
It's too funny. Yeah, we were in class oh. together. Since so yeah. I've yeah. been yeah. ages though. Wow. Yeah, he's he's over in Europe doing things. No way. Okay, yeah. well tell him I say hi. I will. I, I will. Oh my god. <laughs> Nova Scotia and Halifax are like like it's like so it's like two two point one degrees of separation and forget six. There's just oh. no way. No, no. <laughs> But it was like it was in that program. So the program was like a super big critique of international development and a lot of focus on local and the impact you can have when you work mm-hmm. locally. Is it is it still in operation? Both of the program? Yeah. 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 So okay, so cool. College of Sustainability is still there. And I, as far as I know, the IDS International Development Program. So and, mm-hmm. and like throughout, you know, throughout that program, it became really clear to me um power dynamics, um, the impact that corporations have on our policies through lobbying, insane amounts of money. We know that fossil fuel companies knew about climate change for a long time. Mm-hmm. And that the the same connection, the same systems that are making it really challenging for certain people in the world to survive and to prosper and thrive are the same that are extracting and exploiting the planet. Um, so I just, yeah, I decided, I remember saying to myself, I'm going to, my goal now is to make Atlantic Canada fossil fuel free. And I've just been finding, trying to find ways to do it since then. And luckily someone took a risk on me. Uh, it was uh, the few folks at the Ecology Action Center are hiring me almost fresh out of school. And they said, uh-huh. and so I got to work on the energy team with some people that I really admire, like Catherine Abreu and Roscoe right. and um, Stephen Thomas. It was just a great team of people that really showed, that really helped me to um, uh, better understand my place in all this and like the solutions mm-hmm. that are necessary. And of course, I was hired into an energy efficiency position there. So there was the, there was, um, a speaker series. That's where I saw you for the first time, Shauna. Right, that's where we met. Yep. Immediately, just like, oh wow, I want Shauna in my life. Like, can I, just, <laughs> can I spend? How much time can I spend with her? Because I want it all. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it's so cool to still be chatting with you today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it. There's, you know, I just was laughing about how tight. Halifax and Nova Scotia is, but there's a lot like, like when when you have a small market and a small population, it doesn't take that many people to really start to shift how things are done and perspectives and stuff. And you know we saw that in the building industry in um, when like the late 90s, early aughts, because the R2000 program had taken uh taken flight here right in terms of energy efficiency that Nova Scotia was actually the first jurisdiction in Canada to have energy efficiency measures in the building code it's because well that's what everybody's doing and there was a few people who were pushing hard from the Home Builders Association a few other organizations to say we should be doing this so here we you know yeah it, here we it, are. It's, here we are, and we can, you know, just like the country can change and do things and and um, and put out a large uh, effort to change, like yeah. we did in, in World War II. We could do that here in in, in Atlantic Canada mm-hmm. because we do have um, 
a lot more different moving pieces than than Ontario, for example. Yeah, yeah. The building code piece of it is so interesting because there's this whole process underway right now, right, to harmonize the building codes across the country. Yeah, and, and that's really curious what that's going to look like when we have to, you know, we we can't have the same exactly the same buildings in Nova Scotia mm-hmm. as they have in Ontario or BC. So mm-hmm. um, I was actually just recently appointed to the Nova Scotia Building Code Advisory Committee. So we'll Excellent. see where that takes us. Um, and, you know, it's going to, you know, I, I'm definitely very excited to talk about energy efficiency. I have a lot less to offer in terms of plumbing and electrical wiring. There are other people on the committee who can do that work. <laughs> Oh yeah. They, they cannot so do what you can bring to that. Yeah. And they yeah. cannot do what you're going to bring to that committee. So that's really great. I'm really happy. I had, um, a couple of years ago put in an application, but I just, I, I think I'm, I can't <laughs> offer that, that amount of time to something that really needs it. And, um, yeah. you know, so with that in, in your game too, like, do you sleep? <laughs> yes. yes, I sleep. I make credit. I get eight hours a night. I'm very. Oh, yeah. Are you just so exhausted from the end of the day? Just done. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, same as you. You make it happen. You make it work, right? And yeah. um, for me, I have like lots of people in my life that are very insistent on, very supportive of me setting boundaries, and so Excellent. that's Good. very helpful. Well, and that's one of the things as a as um as a as a woman in in the society, right? It's like like there's a constant, constant, constant piece of not doing enough, and and am I doing the right things? And you know, the whole I've been wrestling personally with imposter syndrome, mm-hmm. and I'm like, wait a minute, I've been in this game for thirty years. Like, this is like what? Am I doing enough? Like, am I doing the right things? It's like. Well, who's making the rules, Shauna? Like, talk to the boss in your head. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But but it also means that, you know, that if you don't have people outside of yourself saying, you know, helping you to create those boundaries, then, you know, you can definitely roll off into burnout land really quickly. Yeah. I just read a great book called Burnout by the Nagasaki uh-huh. Sisters, which I'm recommending to every woman that I know who has multiple commitments on her plate. So I recommend it to you as well. It was okay. really fun as an audio book. I know lots of us also don't have time to read. Um, I find I'm just so tired. My eyes are tired from being on the screen all the time. I love reading books, but I'm on the screen like, you know, pretty much all day, whether I'm working on spreadsheets or, or writing or talking to people in or listening to people uh, participating on Zoom. I don't want to read any, like my eyes at the end of the day. I'm like, I'm done. So yeah. audio books. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I was, I was funny. I had these funny things where I was like, I don't need to read. I don't need to do audio books because I can read fast. And I'm like, wow, my eyes are so sore. <laughs> also there, like if they have a great narrator, it's so fun. Yeah. 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 What, yeah. what do you do to wind down? Like, what do you, what do you do when you're not? When I'm not doing this, well, I do a lot of in this in the summertime. I spring, fall, summer. I am spring, fall, summer, spring, summer, fall. <laughs> I'm out. I'm out in the garden growing food. So my goal is that um, I can grow 
I'm, I'm aiming at 70% of our food on this land. And I don't have a big piece of land. I've got an acre and a half suburban lot. Um, but my goal is that I, I, I haven't bought um, garlic for nearly two decades. Wow. Um, and I very rarely have to buy tomatoes. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, so I'm working on other things. But I'm also gro- growing a lot of dry beans. So I have calorific and I have nutritious, nutrient-dense food as well. So that's what I do outside of this. But, of course, you know, because of my personality, it's, like, not just, like, a garden. It's, like, it's an enterprise. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, and then I, yeah, I do yoga. Yeah. I, 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 I do and I've just started this really fun. I mean, this is like totally off topic, but not really because it's the uh, it's the flip side, right? We all need these releases. I just started this 90 day program with uh, called the Health Hussy, which mm-hmm. is absolutely I'm only on day two. Okay. I'm absolutely loving it because after a while, all the yoga voices that are telling you to be calm and you know this is sauna and that is sauna and blah blah blah. I'm like. I'm already dead. I am no longer in my body because I'm just like, I'm not, you know. So yeah. this Health Hussy um, program is by a burlesque dancer whose name, whose stage name is Sweet Pea. Oh, and yeah. it is like two days in. I am just so full of excitement about doing it. There's like oh, wow. this workout. It's wellness, right? So it's yeah. like, okay, so you got to do some workouts and stuff. But she's also an occupational therapist and um, and a physical therapist. Wow. Um, and a life coach. So she's doing this whole sort of wellness thing and is so sassy and spicy. Mm-hmm. I am like, it's like, oh, this is, this is so good. I, I can do yoga on my own. I don't need to listen to anybody to tell me anymore because I've been, it's a practice now for me. Yeah. This is turning me back to a whole bunch of roots in terms of dance and, and just being outrageous. So. Wow. <laughs> so be be prepared. <laughs> Is this like a live thing you're doing with a group of other people, or is it like a program on YouTube you do on your own? It's a it's an asynchronous program, so she is all it's pre-recorded, but there's a Slack channel for for this group, so she does it in cohorts, mm-hmm. and there's one-on-one coaching in it, and there's you know there's a, a whole bunch of stuff around you know, how's your food intake, what are you doing, what you know, what, what's going on with your joints, how are you taking care of them, mm-hmm. um, you know, how are you taking care of your head. Oh, yeah. Shake it out. Have fun. Thinking about yourself and what you're doing. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah, cool. I'm so, so glad you're doing that. Yeah. I would recommend it to anybody. I mean, I'm like I said, I'm only two days in, but, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, as, as somebody who's involved in online training, I can see that this is gonna, this is a well-thought-out yeah. kind of process. Yeah, so. well, you think about mm-hmm. training all the time. Like, how do you – keep people I don't even know the questions you have to ask training is not my not command yeah. but we, we segue into this what do you do <laughs> to wind down other than fall asleep at the end of the day exhausted oh. because your brain is like done oh yeah my brain doesn't turn off though so I've taken up meditation which has really been helping okay. me um I just use the headspace app like I need I need something to help me do it mm-hmm. um and it's Structure been is good game changer um and I, yeah, I, I would like 
I love boxing. That's really my favorite outlet, but I haven't been doing it because of COVID. So that's, I'm mm. like looking for other things. Um, yeah. And I've, I've actually been reading quite a lot. I've been like, I've been picking up books from friends. I'm in a book club with a group of friends where we don't all read the same book together and talk about it. We just all show up and say, this is my favorite book I've read lately. So you just get cool book recommendations. We really do talk about the books. Um, Well, you have to now because with COVID, there's just not like wine clubs with books. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, we haven't had that many because I'm like I'm, I I actually don't even attend a lot of the meetings because I'm all zoomed out by the end of the day. But mm-hmm. um, I'm definitely reading and cooking. I'm cooking a lot. Um, would love to be like I love your idea of eating from your uh, from your own property. I don't have property. I have an apartment right now, but it's very dreamy. We had a CSA for a little while um, mm-hmm. last year from Taproot Farms, giving them a shout out. Nice. It was awesome. Um, so just yeah. so that people know, CSA is Community Supported Agriculture, where you basically buy a box. It is like a the like original a form of to farming. Yeah. yeah, yeah, to farms versus to Uber Eats or what? Not Uber Eats. What's the one? Oh, Hello Fresh. Oh yeah. Those ones. yeah. Yeah, those don't come from farms. They are. They, well, I'm sure they come from farms, but they don't come from. They're not. There's. They're the middle person. Whereas yeah. a CSA is, is direct with the farms, which is another big part of resiliency in general and and uh, an issue within the whole climate change emergency piece is food. Yeah. Well, right? If you don't if you cannot you know, if your food uh, system is so brittle that you know three days of you know a snowstorm that closes down roads and or shuts things down for three days means that you have empty shelves. Yeah, did you see you saw the empty shelves after the last snowstorm? Yeah, you know, yeah, yes, after the last snowstorm. But you know, there's some pictures going around, or this is this is being recorded in January. But there's a you know pictures going around of absolutely bare gar- uh, grocery shelves um, that. Certain people online were saying, "Look at what's happening in Canada." When actually, those are from the north of England. So, yeah, so there are bigger, bigger issues. But it's the same thing, right? Right? It's, but you, you I can't. It was happening in Canada. Like I saw it after our last snowstorm two weeks ago. I went to the grocery store on a Sunday night, and I was like, "None of my like, I can't, <laughs> can't get kale. I can't get green onions. I couldn't even get tomatoes." Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, I, I went up to them. And I was like. Like, you know, what's, what's going on? This is really unusual. And they're like, our truck is stuck in New Brunswick. It's just like, we run out of food so quickly here because mm-hmm. we're relying on important, importing these things from other places. Yeah. And funny guys, like kale and tomatoes, like those are definitely things I could have just gotten on the farmer's market. But like, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it kind of really drove home the point, right? This, they've, there's been studies from the Ecology Action Center, yeah. and I think others say we only have like three days worth of food in Nova Scotia yeah. if we were cut off. And, yeah. you know, we are connected by the Shignecto Isthmus, which we're going to lose because of climate change. And we don't, mm-hmm. I don't know about a plan yet to protect that. Um, yeah, I don't know either, but I do know that we, you know, the, the, the positive news is that Nova Scotia is not very many generations away from being self-sufficient, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, so there's a lot of knowledge that's still here, and there's a lot of of land space that is still here. 
that can be used for food production. Um, And farmers markets have been really taking off and CSAs are very popular. So I think there's, um, I mean, I'm, I'm not in that, the whole part of the, the, the world in terms of, you know, who's, who's going to be feeding whom. Um, but I, I am sort of adjacent to it because of the food, the work that I put into my garden and the, and the community gardens and organizations that I belong to. But there's, yeah, if we can't feed ourselves and we can't stay warm. Yeah. So how are we going to make the next houses? Let's, let's, uh, that's the other thing. (laughs) I had someone argue to me that, or a professor say that eating local isn't actually great because there, a lot of the food that you get locally in the winter is made in a fossil fuel powered greenhouse, which is super energy intensive. And I was just like, well, it doesn't make that net zero or passive solar. You know, use a, is, a, is it called a Wapatini, which is an underground one? I mean, there's tons of things, but the, but even if it is a fossil fueled, uh, warmed greenhouse in the winter, I would have a real hard time being convinced, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I would love to see this. Let's do a comparison of how much energy it takes to actually grow that food here versus Flying it from California. Yeah, and growing it in a mm. in a place where they don't have easy access to water. Right, the, right. So the, there's water the, issues. There's there's transportation issues. There's distribution issues. Yeah. And there's also the issue of how much are people being paid to work in the migrant workers being paid to work in those fields in in the U.S. Not a lot. How much abuse are they taking? A lot. You know, there's I mean, that's true here too, unfortunately. Well, yes, yeah, yes, yes. I shouldn't be so, so, I don't know what's I know. There's a word, but, but there's a bunch of, but I'm just trying to push, push the envelope on the discussion in terms of it. it's, it's a bigger picture than how much does it cost you to run that greenhouse versus, yeah, totally. You know, you know it's like, well, I would prefer to actually have non, organic food that was grown here than to be putting organic food in my body that has contributed to, you know, the, 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 the CO2 emissions that are attached and follow that, you know, if we, if we go down the, 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 the supply chain, that organic tomato has way more fossil fuel attached to it than the one that was grown here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this yeah. is, this is all, these are all the com- same kind of complex conversations we have with buildings, right? When we talk about retrofit or build new, like mm-hmm. the greenest building is the one that already exists. If you are yeah. going to retrofit it to make it net zero energy, what are the building materials you're using? Are you, yeah. are we thinking about, um, building in an EV charger? How close is it to the amenities people need to walk to? Are you building a net zero building that you'll always need to drive everywhere to that you're going Mm -hmm. like to when, if if you're at home, you know? So I think it's, it's similar, all these conversations and like, right, right down to like, how are the people getting paid? Are they being taken care of the people that are building and taking care of those buildings? Are they getting a, this, a living wage? So, Mm -hmm. um, I actually feel like we hear those conversations a little bit less than, uh, but I don't think we have, as many migrant workers or um, not as many, um, not like, like, yeah, not like in places like, um, like Ontario, Southern Ontario, where there's, there's 
huge influx of, of folks to, to pick the fields. But yeah. I, don't think, I think that there is a migrant worker population here, but not as much. And I just, I honestly, I don't, I don't, anything that I would say about that would be a guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, you could ask me more about who's getting paid what in the building fields. Yeah. <laughs> and it is an important conversation, right? Because I spent so long talking about climate jobs and I spent a lot of time talking about the just transition. And when we talk about like climate policies, the, the, um, the sweetheart of climate policies is retrofits because it's mm-hmm. like great for the economy. It's great yep. for the pocketbook. You can't, you can't job. outsource it. You can't outsource it. But how do you tell someone who's making a six figure job in the oil patch that they're going to now work on insulating people's homes? It's not the same mm-hmm. kind of work. You don't always get, you know, I don't think you get the same kind of compensation. Um, so there is a conversation to be had about, you know, what are the, like, what is, what are people getting compensated for this extremely valuable work? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Especially if you start thinking about retrofits as part of the public good. Yeah. Yeah. So can you, can you talk a little bit more about the just transition? I can do my best. You know, I think, um, if just, just so that people can understand just, what, yeah. what, what so you're like talking the, about so, and the so context. Right. So like the concept of a just transition is we need to transition from this, very carbon intensive economy to a zero carbon, a real zero carbon economy. Um, and a society where um, we're not extracting fossil fuels. We know, we know where our greenhouse gas emissions come from, but there are a lot of people that rely on that, uh, mm-hmm. on those industries and um, for their livelihoods um, or they're maybe not directly employed by them, but indirectly and we can't just leave those people out in the cold. So the just transition is this idea that those people who work in the sunset industries need to be transitioned in a fair and thoughtful way into this new economy. And mm-hmm. there is also the really key aspect of it in terms of when I think about just transition, we're talking a lot about workers right now and labor. Um, but we also want to be talking <clears throat> about like just the inequities of climate change where the, 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 what we hear repeated so often is, um, those who are the least responsible for climate change suffer the first and worst. So mm-hmm. if we, if we're able to build climate solutions, those should be the first people to benefit from those climate solutions or to come right. up with those climate solutions. They often know the solutions better than someone who's farther away from the problem. Um, and so, you know, What's really interesting with the just transition piece, from my perspective, when we take it back to the Second World War comparison, is we had a million people who live in Canada, who are Canadians, that went to war, and they had to be reintegrated into a post-war economy. Mm-hmm. And that meant providing them housing, providing them training, providing them education. And kudos to those veterans. Not Kudos is not a like, respectable enough a word. But one of the things they had to do when they come, came back was fight for those things. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was a million Canadians in like decades ago that we were able to reintegrate into an economy. So we need to do that again in the just transition. And we actually have half as many people work. So okay. just, 
that was going to be my question. How many people are we talking about having to move from those sunsetting industries? My numbers say 300,000. Okay. But, like, I think CAP, Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, would say 500,000. But still, that is many fewer people. It's and many also, fewer people, and there's also our, the whole population in the country has grown, so it's actually a smaller percentage. Exactly. And so mm-hmm. we have to start thinking about, like, how do we make how do we make this transition happen? Because we know that people are rightfully afraid of what that mm-hmm. transition looks like. So in, in like, we have a really good example of what, uh, of that in Nova Scotia where, um, 2019, I believe, um, the liberal government shut down the Northern Pulp paper mill after that was maybe the 12th time they promised to do it or like they'd, they'd at least promised a half dozen times at this point and they shut it down and they, but all of a sudden there was, thousands of people without work mm-hmm. and they they put together a just transition fund for that but um but that fund was just like a pot of money there wasn't like a plan for how to use it so they said this is a just transition fund but there are still all these people without work and they didn't have something to do right away um unless there's something i don't know about um and that's actually something i point to as like that's an example of an industry that we knew was going to have to shut down and we did not help, mm-hmm. we did not come up with a just transition for them. We can say the same thing about the cod fishery. Right. We right. knew it was going to collapse. We didn't do anything for those fishers. And yes. so people in Atlantic Canada like really know what happens if you don't invest and the in the coal, transition. coal mining like coal. industry as well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely the coal. So there's still 600 people that are employed in coal in Nova Scotia. And so um, when I talk about the just transition and I'm talking about climate jobs, it's like we talk a lot about jobs that are going to be created in this green economy. It's making sure that they're good jobs. We'll want to be in those jobs. Um, and, and, that there's, and that there's equity in terms of, of pay so that there's – so somebody's not leaving exactly. one of the, a very – you know, probably over, I'm not going to say overpriced, that's not the right word, but yeah. <laughs> um, but a, a, a high income level and then have to go back, you know, down into something where they may never have actually been in that low, lower income zone. Um, yeah. And that's really, really hard because, you know, we're all scrambling for, um, you know, from, from the other side, from the building industry side, for example, there are so many challenges to making housing affordable because of the cost of materials and labor and then can you find people to do the work because we're we're at a at a crisis point in terms of how many people are coming into the industry versus how many people are leaving the industry as retiring um and so we do have some big issues there because people want if you want new housing or if you want to retrofit it has to be able to fit into individuals' price points the way that the way the world is structured right now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can't fly somebody in and say, "Well, we're going to pay you," you know, if you were getting I don't know whatever oil rig workers get I don't know a hundred dollars an hour, um, and here's you know here's our you can come in as a carpenter's helper who's getting thirty five an hour. That's not going to fly, but they can't go to that. 
a higher number because there's no way that any project would ever get done. No, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's, it's that piece. I'm, I'm tend, I tend to say to somebody else, yeah, mm, I don't, yeah, I don't do employment job stuff. I just, I understand the issues, <laughs> but yeah. let me do, I'm just going to fall back on the technical things because I can understand those easier. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, I, and this is a really live conversation in Nova Scotia too, right? Like I remember probably like four or five years ago, um, there was a lot of focus on us having the longest commute in Canada with so many people from our, from our province flying to Alberta or Saskatchewan mm-hmm. to work, work in oil. Right. And, um, there was a really great piece that came out about that. I'm sorry, I can't remember who the journalist who wrote it. Um, and there was, I, not that much later, I saw a piece about two brothers who'd been laid off from oil. So, like, also, there is a boom and bust still in oil. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember there always has been too. Yep. people being, um, yeah. like, communities built around these extraction, extractive industries that can't extract anymore. The community's still there. Like, we see yep. that all all around the world and um but yeah these two they were laid off and they decided to start an insulation company in Nova Scotia and they said it's way, way less pay but I don't need to leave my family for two weeks a year like I'm much happier mm-hmm. I'm healthier um I think it might be a tougher job um than the one they had like there's all kinds of jobs you could have working in oil and gas but mm-hmm. um the the one that moving into insulation was a little bit more hands-on I reached out to them so I could talk to them and get their story, but um, they didn't want to talk to me probably because of what, like, who I am, like climate activist, not <laughs> wherever this is going. But um, I, I just thought that was really, really interesting to tell this story, like about the uh, the, the non-monetary benefits. But mm-hmm. we do have to think about like people do need to be paid adequately, so it yeah. is definitely complex. Um, and yeah, and it, it's changing here too in terms of you know we'll think about coming back here and spending you know way less money on a house, but that's changing too now that prices are going up here as well. Yeah. So yeah. I mean that was my when my partner moved out here from BC um, eight years ago. He's like, "Are you kidding me? Look at this!" But like he he moved from Vancouver, right? Where you know yeah. um, <laughs> where where there's no way that anybody who is under fifty who is not making you know in the upper echelons of a six figure <laughs> income could even consider owning a house. Yeah. They might be able to um, own a, a condo and it might be in Maple Ridge. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, I don't know what like, about Vancouver. It's just lots of money and, you know, and then very long commutes. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, but it's, uh, you know, we're definitely seeing some increase in, house prices now because people are very interested in coming here because it's less expensive and we have this great war where you know I have three or four friends who have sold their houses in the last two years in the pandemic and they mm-hmm. have been snapped up one house within 48 hours of the first showing wow. and $20,000 over the asking price like that's just like the starting bid was way over um and you know and the other folks have all been over their asking price and and really fast on the on the turnaround and so that doesn't bode well for 
an affordable housing strategy, whether it's, and I'm not talking about an affordable housing strategy in terms of how to, you know, social housing, just simply what, you know, the market is not going to be able to bear yeah. what's here because we also have lower median incomes. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm a, I'm a well-employed individual from an upper middle class family and I, like many people, I'm just not that inter- like we can't get into this. <laughs> Here's my cat. <cabin. laughs> we can't. It's hard to. Um, it's it's not a market you want to buy in. Everyone's advising you against it. Um, mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, we're we're it's it's tough. I feel like we veered a little bit from the the just transition piece, but it's all connected. Like, but, but this is part of it. Of it. Yeah, yeah, this is part of it, right? You can't make a just transition if you're not thinking about how, how, what you're going to do for those people who are in sunsetting industries. If you're doing something for them, how is that affecting the rest of the, of, of the population that's not in those industries? And how do you, is there compensation that needs to be moved the other way? You know, yeah. It's, it's one of those things that I thought, I, I really, love the idea of diving into the complexity of it, but I know that I wouldn't surface from that, the you know, because it's multiple rabbit holes and it's like <laughs> changing pieces that move. It's like building a sense of solidarity and community that we're all in this together. And this comes back to the telling the truth piece. It's like mm-hmm. if we're actually taking action on climate change, we're making sure that everyone is housed and everyone can afford to eat and everyone has food security because we're going to be making some really big shifts and people need to feel safe and need to feel like uh, it's not only going to be the rich that benefit from climate mm-hmm. action. And it's not only going to be the people that are already fairly well off from their jobs in the energy industry that are going to benefit from this transition. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's all, it's all part. It's all, yeah. I'm just repeating what you said. It's all connected. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's one of the things that I say a lot. Yeah. <laughs> like it's like a mantra. It's all connected. You can't tease out one, one tiny thread and say, Oh, look, changing that will make, a viable solution. It's like, well, if you pull that thread and you pull it another inch, look at how tight that makes everything else around it. Like if you think about pulling uh, the thread out in a sweater, right? You've, you've, mm-hmm. you've tagged, torn, torn the sweater, the knitting, and you have this little tiny piece of yarn and you pull it a bit, it's going to tighten up around that hole. Yeah. And then if you pull a lot, the whole thing's going to unravel. Yeah. And then, you know, so it's, that's a, that's the analogy that I always think of is like, you can't just pull on that thing, you know, you got to figure out how it's sorted out. So, um, or how it's, how it's sorted out. You you can't sort it out without how knowing how the structure can be changed. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where we're going to (laughs) go. Working on it. And so, this is like we're coming to the to the end of our, our session here, but you know we need to scale so fast and so hard. How, I don't answer this question in a minute, Emma. How do we do it? <laughs> you don't. You can answer um, in a minute. Might not say the steps in the order they need. They need to be said in. It's okay. But we need. We we do need to be willing to spend what it takes to move from voluntary to mandatory. So we need to be willing to 
moved from these often incentivized based retrofit programs that are choosing one measure or a few measures. We need to make them mandatory, like every building built before 9096 in this neighborhood that's a bungalow style and oil heated, we're going to do in the next year. Uh Um, And we need to be deliberate, deliberate about it. And we need to be um, um, very honest about why we're choosing those buildings um, and it all needs to be part of a bigger program, like saying, like, we're doing this because of climate um, and to make, help lower your energy bills and um, and your home's going to be healthier. I'm thinking about the conversation you were having with Lara about that, um, about all of this, about the R3 program. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We need to find solutions that are less – we need to find retrofit solutions that are less um, – invasive to homes so yeah. which is why we're obsessed with this energy sprung like right people don't even need to leave most of the time yes you might need to go yeah. to pop out the windows and add a new mechanical system or take out the old mechanical system but it's much less invasive um and we need like you know for i i would love to see a national retrofit mission um and a debate I've been having with people about whether it needs to be a crown corporation owned, owned by the government or something different because political winds change. Mm-hmm. If we did mm-hmm. decide that we were in climate emergency mode and we we're going to treat it like a war, we only have a certain amount of time during which we need to retrofit these homes and need to complete this mission. So maybe it does need to be a government run program. We need to see homes as a, as a public service that's going to yep. make it more healthier it's going to improve the resiliency of our energy grid it's going to improve the resiliency of ourselves because we're locked into a certain amount of climate change now where we are like if if those 600 people who died in bc because of the heat dome had had heat pumps if they had been re- taken off natural gas and given electric um mini split the cooling the cooling would have been there they yeah. would have they might still be with us today Like this Mm -hmm. is like, this is, these retrofits are a life and death thing in many cases. And so, um, yeah, spending what it takes, no more incentive based programs, only mandatory programs. And the reason I'm, those two are so connected is because lots of people cannot afford to make their home net zero. Well, and there's lots of people can't afford to get, yeah. I mean, how can, so, so let's look at the greener homes initiative, which is $700,000, $5,000 grants. But you have to have, you have to pay the energy advisor and you have to pay the contractor first and then you get reimbursed for it. If you don't have the $5,000 in the first place, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, so who gets to benefit? People who have money again. So if there's, you know, and that's probably a whole nother episode to rant and rave about, but. I mean, we can both also <laughs> praise the homewarming program for the certain yeah. people that do are able to get all that for free because it's yes. cool that we have that. But I think yeah. we also know that those that homewarming program isn't deep retrofit most of the time. Yeah, it's not. It's it's a very limited array, and I know that they are talking about trying to build it out. So homewarming is a program that Clean Foundation runs that is looking at lower lower income um, households and and helping them to improve reduce their energy um, needs but it definitely is is restricted and I know that they're they're hoping to be able to do 
fingers Think crossed for them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we are out of time, and I think that you and I could probably do, I don't know, what do we think, maybe five episodes together? <laughs> Okay, you're on. Or just, or just the whole season. <laughs> let's, let's talk so, about the scaling up piece more together. That'd be fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We will, we will. Um, I think that there's there's a scaling up piece that yeah we with a bunch of folks. I think it'll be really cool to have a bunch of people talk about it mm-hmm. um, and talk talk not just talk about it but talk with each other. Sometimes we don't have that opportunity as much as we'd like to, and especially in when in now in the pandemic so we're going to wrap now so thank you so much for your time today emma really appreciate it and that's our episode and thanks for tuning in thanks thank you for tuning in this episode was produced by blue house energy podcast atlantic and tanya media subscribe and don't miss an episode leave a comment we'd love to hear from you until next time (laughs) 